You're listening to a sermon from Darabin Presbyterian Church. Visit us online for more resources or to get in touch. The reading today is Romans chapter 9, verses 1 to 5. I speak the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience confirms it through the Holy Spirit. I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were cursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my people, those of my own race, the people of Israel. Theirs is the adoption to sonship, theirs the divine glory, the covenants, the receiving of the law, the temple worship and the promises. Theirs are the patriarchs, and from them is traced the human ancestry of the Messiah, who is God over all, forever praised. Amen. Uh, Brothers and sisters, uh, would you please pray with me uh, as we come to look at God's word together this afternoon? Let's pray. Our Father, we need uh, to hear you speak to us uh, this morning by the power of your spirit uh, through your word. Uh, Please, Father, uh, give me all the help that I need. Uh, Help me to be faithful. Help me to be clear. Uh, Help me to, uh, by your grace and your spirit, uh, bring to life the meaning of this passage uh, such that it really uh, grips our hearts and minds and uh, makes us uh, more like your son, in whose name we pray. Amen. Uh, I wonder what you would class as a tragedy A couple of years ago, uh, the NBA team that I support, the Boston Celtics, uh, they recruited an all-star recruit. His his name was Gordon Haywood. His name is Gordon Haywood indeed. Uh, And you can imagine as an all-star recruit, there was all sorts of hype about Gordon Haywood's debut. Uh, Five minutes into his first game with the Boston Celtics, he took a fall and snapped his ankle in half out for for the rest of the season, indeed, into the next season as well. It was a a horrific injury. And I remember at the time some of the commentators commentators saying, it's such a tragedy for Gordon Haywood. What a tragedy for the Boston Celtics. I remember thinking, well, sure, it's sad. I understand that. It's very sad for, for Gordon Haywood, for his family, for the team. It's sad, but it's certainly not a tragedy. I wonder what you would class as a tragedy. Uh, Perhaps it's the Spanish flu pandemic in Australia in 1918. More than 12,000 people were killed in that pandemic. Uh, Maybe it's the polio epidemic that was in Australia uh, between 1946 and 1955. More than 1,000 people were killed. Uh, Maybe it's the Black Saturday bushfires. You remember those in 2009? 171 people killed in Victoria alone. And maybe it's this current COVID-19 pandemic that we're living through. So far, well over 250 uh, 250 people killed across Australia. All those things are indeed tragedies. I'm not trying to minimise those things in any way. But the truth is, none of them are the greatest tragedy. The greatest tragedy... It is when someone rejects Christ. The greatest tragedy is when someone is cut off from Christ, not just now, uh, but for eternity. 
And of course, this is particularly tragic when someone has had all the opportunities that they might have needed to put their trust in Christ, to be united with Christ by faith, that they've been blessed with immense religious privileges and yet they've still rejected Christ and they're still cut off from Christ. Now, that's the tragedy that we see in today's passage. The big idea of today's passage is when people reject Christ, especially those who have enjoyed great religious privileges, we should be moved to great sorrow, for this is the greatest tragedy. But before we get into the details of Romans 9 verses 1 to 5, let me first say three things that will hopefully help us set the context a bit for Romans 9 to 11 as a whole. First of all, what's the purpose of Romans 9 to 11? Many people, when they're preaching through the book of Romans, they just skip chapters 9 to 11 altogether. Romans 1 to 8, this kind of wonderful unpacking of how God has saved us through faith in Christ. And chapters 12 to 16 helpfully unpack all the implications of that salvation. Uh, And in the middle, you've got chapters 9 to 11 that just seem a little bit out of place. Uh, First of all, they just seem a little bit irrelevant. Because here we've got this section, uh, which is really about uh, how we're supposed to think and feel and respond to the unbelief of Israel. uh, The unbelief of the Jewish people. And not many of us know many Jews. So it just feels a bit irrelevant. What are we supposed to do with it? On top of that, it's a little bit controversial. If you've read through these chapters before, you you might know that it raises some really big questions about the the sovereignty of God, about the place of the nation of Israel, about this idea that all Israel will be saved. All those things and other things can promote controversy. And on top of that, it's just a bit confusing. This, this section of the book of Romans has a whole lot of Old Testament quotes and allusions, more than any other section in the book of Romans. So it's just a little bit hard to understand. So the question is, why even bother looking at this section? If it's just going to promote controversy and confusion, and it's just irrelevant in the end anyway. Why look at it? What's the purpose of it? Well, let me encourage you, if you've got your Bible open, to flick to the end of this section in Romans chapter 11, verses 33 to 36. Flick to the end, Romans 11, verses 33 to 36. You'll see there in those verses that Paul is not saying, well, finally, finally I've gotten through all that controversial stuff, got that behind me, all that confusing stuff. Now I can get on to some more relevant stuff from chapter 12. Right, Paul... Excuse me, Paul is not saying that. Paul's praising God, overflowing with praise for God, because of his incredible mercy and wisdom. That's the purpose of this section. If Adam and I do a good job of unpacking these chapters, we hope that that's what's happening by the time we get to the end of Romans 11, that, that all of us would be joining Paul in praising God for his wonderful mercy and wisdom. Now, that's the purpose. Now, what about the, the historical context of this section? Now, well, in Acts chapter 2, in Acts chapter 2, verse 10, uh, we see that there were at least some Jews from Rome in Jerusalem at Pentecost when Peter was preaching his sermon. 
His sermon, you remember, about how God has raised Jesus from the dead and appointed him as Lord and Christ. So some of these Jews from Rome would have been listening to Peter's sermon. They would have responded to Peter's sermon in faith and then returned to Rome. And mostly we, uh, people agree that that's how the church in Rome would have been planted. Uh, so at least initially, the church in Rome would have consisted largely of Jewish Christians. Uh, maybe a, a few Gentile, believe, Gentile believers, of course. Uh, but then in 49 AD, the Roman Emperor Claudius kicked all the Jews out of Rome, including the Jewish Christians. So between 49 AD and 54 AD, when Claudius died and the Jews were allowed to come back into Rome, the church, the Gentile Christians in the church in Rome assumed a much larger and more influential role. What does that mean? It means that by the time Paul's writing his letter to the church in Rome in 57 AD, the whole question of how Jewish and Gentile believers should relate to one another is a really big deal. We've already seen that to some extent in the book of Romans so far. If you flick back in the, in the book of Romans to chapter 3, verse 27, you'll see there that Paul urges Jewish Christians to not boast about all the privileges that they might have had and somehow think themselves better than their Gentile brothers and sisters. And in this next section, in chapter 11, verses 13 to 20, Paul's basically going to do the same thing to Gentile Christians. He's going to say, don't think, don't be arrogant. Don't think yourselves better than your Jewish brothers and sisters. So that's the historical context of this section. The whole question of how Jews and Gentiles should relate to one another is a really big deal here. How should we think about one another? How should we feel? How should we relate to one another? A third, uh, what's the literary context of Romans 9 to 11? Now, how does it fit in the flow of what Paul's been saying in the book of Romans? Uh, one of the questions that Paul's been, ad been addressing in Romans chapters 1 to 8 uh, is, has God been faithful to his promises? Has he been faithful? And you might remember in Romans chapter 3, verses 3 and 4, Paul very briefly defended God's faithfulness. Romans 3, verses 3 and 4, uh, Paul says there, what if some were unfaithful? Right? That is, what if some of God's chosen people, the Jews, were unfaithful? Uh, Paul asks the question, will their unfaithfulness nullify God's faithfulness? Not at all, he says. Let God be true and every human being a liar, right? God has been faithful to his promises. And then in the second half of Romans chapter 4, uh, Paul insisted that the God's promise that, that people could be made righteous by faith, right? his promise that he first made to Abraham back in Genesis chapter 15, that promise is guaranteed, Paul says, because it comes completely by grace. God has been faithful. God's promise is guaranteed. So at the end of Romans chapter 8, Paul is praising God for the wonderful assurance that those that his promises are secure for his people, that absolutely nothing can separate them from his love for them in Christ Jesus. So as we come to the start of Romans chapter 9, uh, the question is, if God is so faithful to his promises, if his promises are guaranteed, if his people are secure in his love, 
then why is it that, that so many of the Jews have rejected Jesus? Why haven't all Israel believed? It seems like God has been unfaithful to them. So that's the literary context of Romans chapters 9 to 11. So let's look at the passage. First, in verses 1 to 3, we see Paul's great sorrow. In verses 1 to 3, we see Paul's great sorrow. Let me read from verse 1. Paul says, I speak the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience confirms it through the Holy Spirit. Three ways of Paul saying, I really am telling the truth. And that's even clearer in the original where the word truth comes first. Right? If Paul was Yoda, kind of a, a wooden translation would be something like, truth I speak in Christ. It's kind of, he's put truth right up at the forefront of his mind. And he says it in three different ways. Right? He says, I speak the truth in Christ. Well, what does he mean by, by saying, I speak the truth in Christ? He's referring to the fact that when you become a Christian, when you put your faith in Christ, you're brought into a deep spiritual communion with Christ. You're united with Christ such that you live your whole life in the presence of Christ. So here Paul's saying, how could I possibly lie when I'm in this deep spiritual communion with the one who is the way, the truth and the life? Oh, I couldn't lie in his presence. That's not who I am anymore. I'm in Christ. And then he says, I'm not lying. That word lying is where we get our word pseudo, you know, pseudonym. It's something fake, something not real, something not true. And then Paul says, my conscience confirms it in the Holy Spirit. Right? Paul's just said, I'm in Christ and now he, says, I'm, now he says, I'm also in the Spirit. The, the Spirit is in me. I'm filled with the Spirit. But I'm also in the Spirit. I'm no longer in the flesh, Romans 8, but I'm in the Spirit. And the Spirit confirms with my conscience that I really am telling the truth here. What's Paul telling the truth about? And why does he think he needs to say three times that he is telling the truth? Well, it's because of what he's about to say in verses 2 and 3. What's he going to say? He's going to say, on the one hand, uh, that his own people are cursed and cut off from Christ. Uh, but on the other hand, he really, really loves them. And I think he thinks that, that people are going to doubt that he loves his own people. How can you possibly say that, that someone is cursed and cut off uh, and still say you love them. Uh, and Paul says I, th both those things are true. I really do love them, but they really are cut off from Christ. Oh, look at verse 2. Uh, Paul says there, uh, let me just find it in my notes. Uh, verse 2, he says, I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. Paul has this great sorrow. Literally, it says mega sorrow. And on top of that, he says unceasing anguish. He's in constant pain and distress in his heart, in the very core of his being. 
This is a massive emotional shift, isn't it? If you're reading through to the end of Romans chapter 8, Paul at the end of Romans 8 is joyfully praising God. And then in the next breath here, he says he's filled with great sorrow and unceasing anguish. What is it that's brought about this change? How is it possible for the same person to be filled with great sorrow and great joy seemingly at exactly the same time? Well, he explains it in verse 3. Look at verse 3. Uh, he says, For, why, why is it that I've got this great sorrow and unceasing anguish? For, because I could wish that I myself were cursed and cut off from Christ. Right? Cursed and cut off. Now, that, that's actually just one Greek word. Some of you might have heard the word before. It's the word anathema. It's a pretty intense word. It does mean to to be cursed, to to be damned, to be destined for destruction. You see, Paul knows that the greatest treasure in the whole world is to be in Christ, as he's just said about himself, to be united with Christ by faith. That's the greatest treasure, because because it's the only way that anyone can be declared innocent before God now and be saved from God's wrath later. Well, we've seen that in Romans chapters 1 to 8. It's the only shelter from God's righteous wrath and judgment is to be in Christ. So this is the greatest treasure. And of course, Paul knows that there's absolutely no way he can be cut off from Christ. He's just said at the end of Romans 8, our union with Christ is absolutely unbreakable. And yet here he says, Because of his great love for his people, his people in the flesh, the Jewish people, because of his great love for them, sometimes he wishes he could be cut off from Christ. He understands that to be cut off from Christ is the greatest tragedy that could befall anyone. Because Christ is the source of salvation, the only source of salvation, the source of life, the source of blessing and everything good. And to be cut off from Christ is to be like a fish out of water. It's to be like a flower that's been cut out of the garden. It's to be like an astronaut who's lost connection with their space shuttle. All those things might have the appearance of being alive. But in the end, they're doomed to death and destruction. And so Paul says, I love my people. I'm serious. I'm telling the truth. I love my people. And sometimes I wish I could embrace their fate uh, of being cut off from Christ for their sake in their place. Paul's so grieved by the fact that his fellow Jews are currently cut off from Christ that he wishes that he could be cut off from Christ himself. This is Paul's great sorrow. And in verses 4 and 5, we see that Paul's sorrow is really only compounded by the fact that he fully understands the great privileges that his people have had. Privileges that really should have pointed them towards Christ. Why do you, in verse 4, you you see that the overarching privilege that Paul refers to is the fact uh, that these are the people of Israel. Literally, the Israelites. 
And there was a real badge of honor to be an Israelite. Well, we see that, say, for example, in, in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, where Paul's defending himself against the false apostles. Uh, and he says, are they Israelites? Well, so am I. Oh, what a privilege to be a part of the people who belongs to God. Uh, and then under the banner of that overarching privilege of being Israelites, Paul lists seven other privileges that belong to the Israelites. He says, first... Uh, theirs is the adoption to sonship. Well, we saw this in the book of Exodus not too long ago, didn't we? In Exodus chapter 4, verses 22 and 23, uh, God said, Israel is my firstborn son. Right? Out of all the peoples on earth, God chose to set his affection upon Israel, to, to adopt them as his chosen child. Uh, uh, second, uh, theirs is the divine glory, Paul says. When Israel was redeemed from Egypt, uh, they were guided and protected by God's divine glory. It appeared as a, as a pillar of cloud during the day and a pillar of fire by night. Uh, later on, God's divine glory dwelt among his people in that portable tent known as the tabernacle. Then once they were in the promised land, uh, God dwelt among his people in all his glory uh, in the temple in Jerusalem. Theirs is the divine glory, Paul says. A third, uh, theirs are the covenants. Uh, the covenants there where it refers to all the times and places in the Bible where God said to the Israelites, you are my people and I will be your God. The covenant with Abraham in Genesis 12, 15 and 17 in particular. Covenant with Moses in Exodus 19 to 24. The covenant with David in 2 Samuel chapter 7. Theirs are the covenants, Paul says. Fourth, theirs uh, is the receiving of the law. As a part of the covenant with Moses at Mount Sinai, Moses received God's law. Exodus 20, it was the Ten Commandments. And Exodus 21 to 24, it's all the other detailed laws. What a privilege for the Israelites to have this clear revelation from God about how he wanted them to live as his people. And then, because Moses has received all those laws from God, including the laws about the priesthood and the sacrificial system, Israel had the temple worship. And the temple worship that continually reminded them that their God was holy, that they were sinful, and that if they wanted to have a relationship with God, they needed to have a priest to offer a sacrifice for their sins. Oh, what a privilege to live your life being continually reminded of these wonderful truths. Theirs is the temple worship. 6 verse 5, uh, Israel had the promises of God. Right? All the, the covenant promises that God had made are uh, originally made to the patriarchs, uh, which were also, which kind of also belonged to Israel. The patriarchs being Abraham, Isaac and Jacob, the, the fathers of the Jewish faith. These are the seven privileges that, that uh, Paul says belonged to the Israelites. You see the repetition here where, where Paul keeps saying theirs is this and theirs is that. So these are the privileges that, that belonged to the Israelites that the Israelites had. But then Paul says and from them 
uh, is traced the human ancestry, ancestry, blah, 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 ancestry of the Messiah, who is God over all, forever praised. Amen. So all those other privileges belong to the Israelites, but Jesus the Messiah merely comes from the Israelites. Right? They don't own Jesus. Because Jesus is God, and not just over the Israelites, but God over all, Paul says. Isn't that a, a kind of majestic claim about Jesus' identity? He is God over all, over people of every nation. These are the incredible privileges that the people of Israel enjoyed. And maybe you can see how Paul's sorrow is intensified by the fact that all these privileges really should have helped the Jews to get who Jesus was. That the message should have been clearest out of all people to them. Because all these privileges point to Jesus, that they're fulfilled in Jesus. How could they not have seen that the Jesus is not only the adopted Son of God, but the eternal Son of God? That should have been obvious to them, Paul saying. How could they not have seen that the Jesus is the glory of God made flesh? Right, John 1 verse 14 says, The Word became flesh and made his dwelling among us, literally tabernacled among us, and we beheld his glory The glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father. Jesus is the Son of God. Jesus is the glory of God. Uh, Jesus is the climax of of all the covenants of God. By his blood shed on the cross, uh, Jesus established the new covenant which brought to fulfillment all the promises in those other covenants. Jesus is the fulfillment of God's law. Paul's about to say that in Romans 10 verse 4. He says there, Christ is the culmination of the law. Jesus is the fulfillment of every aspect of the temple worship. Jesus is the ultimate temple. Jesus is the ultimate priest. Jesus is the ultimate sacrifice through whom we have access to God our Father. Jesus brings to fulfillment all God's promises to the patriarchs. As Paul says in 2 Corinthians 1 verse 20, for no matter how many promises God has made, they are yes in Christ. All these privileges the Israelites enjoyed and all of them are fulfilled in Christ. Which is why as wonderful as these privileges are, in the end they mean nothing for someone who is not united with Christ by faith. That's what Paul's saying here. What a tragedy for someone to to have such immense religious privileges, all of which pointed you towards Jesus, and then not to put your trust in Jesus, the one who who brings the fulfilment of all those privileges. You feel Paul's sorrow. I hope you do. It's as if he's saying it's one thing for for a Gentile who who knew nothing about God, who didn't have all these privileges to reject Jesus. That's still a tragedy. But, but, But the greatest tragedy is for these Israelites who enjoyed every privilege, who had every pointer towards Jesus. What a horrible, horrible tragedy for them to be cut off from Christ. When people reject Christ, especially those 
who've enjoyed great religious privileges, we should be moved to great sorrow, for this is the greatest tragedy. Now, I dare say not many of us would know a Jew who has rejected Jesus as the Messiah. Maybe some of you do, and if you do, I hope your heart is filled with great sorrow as Paul's heart is filled with here. But perhaps a kind of parallel for today is someone who has grown up in the church, the covenant people of God, someone who's spent their whole life in the church, enjoying immense religious privileges. If you were to sort of paraphrase, rewrite Romans chapter 9 in light of this context, you might say something like, theirs, theirs is the preaching of the gospel. Theirs is the teaching of God's word. Theirs is the witnessing and even the partaking of the sacraments. Theirs is the experience of corporate worship. Theirs is the fellowship of the believers. Theirs are the prayers of the saints. All these incredible privileges of being a part of the covenant people belong to them. And as wonderful as they are, all of them mean nothing if that person remains cut off from Christ. If they are not united with Christ by faith. That's the tragedy, Paul say, for someone to enjoy these great religious privileges and yet still be cut off from Christ. So I wonder how you feel about those you know who are currently cut off from Christ. One of the things about being a Christian uh, being someone who's united with Christ by faith, is that over time your union with Christ should affect your whole person. Right? Being a Christian, it doesn't just affect how we think. Uh, it doesn't just affect uh, what we do with our hands. It doesn't just affect our heads or our hands. It also affects our heart, right? what we feel. How we feel matters. Right? Over time, as someone who's united with Christ, we'll start to feel the same way about the same things as Jesus does. That's what we see here with Paul. Right? Jesus was grieved that the Jews had rejected him. So Paul, as one who's united with Jesus by faith, is grieved that the Jews have rejected Jesus. So I wonder how you feel about those you know who are currently cut off from Christ. And maybe you do share Paul's sorrow. Even as you've been listening to, to me speak about this passage uh, and the tragedy of people being cut off from Christ. Uh, you're thinking about your family, your friends, people that you know and love. And it's just, it's just eating you up on the inside to think about their fate apart from Christ. If that's you, uh, maybe you could see that as an encouragement in a strange way, an encouragement that you are united with Christ and his spirit is at work in your life, that you share his sorrow for those who don't know him. And maybe you used to feel like that, uh, but then it just got too hard. You just couldn't live with that kind of sorrow and thinking about that anymore. So you've done your best over the years to suppress those feelings of sorrow. 
just, just to protect yourself a little bit. And I totally understand that. I'm not saying we've got to live in this place of, of deep sorrow all the time. I'm not saying that at all. Paul himself was filled with great joy at the end of Romans 8. I understand that, that these feelings are really complex and hard to navigate. But the problem of suppressing these feelings of sorrow and not really facing up to it is that we often end up being a little bit indifferent and apathetic towards those who don't know Christ. We find ourselves in a place where we know we should care about those who don't know Jesus, but we just don't. We're not really giving them a second thought. So what do we do when we don't share in Paul's sorrow for those who don't know Christ? Well, first, uh, some of you might need to search your own heart to see if you are in Christ yourself, to see if you're actually a Christian. Are you you united with Christ by faith? We see in this passage that it's very, very possible to grow up in the church, to, to spend your whole life in the church enjoying immense religious privileges, and yet still not to have come to a vital faith in Christ for yourself, and to still be cut off from Christ. So maybe this is too bold of me to say. Right? I understand that the people's personalities can all be different and our feelings in the, in the Christian life can go up and down. We don't want to trust them too much. But eternity is at stake here, isn't it? Being in Christ or not is a very big deal. So I sort of feel compelled to say, Uh, That if you have never felt any sorrow for those who are cut off from Christ, uh, then it's quite possible that you remain cut off from Christ yourself. If you have never never felt any compassion for for those who are spiritually lost, then it's quite possible that you're among the spiritually lost yourself. Uh, For some of you, you really should search your own heart to see if you are in Christ. Have you put your trust in Christ for yourself? Uh, but I, my assumption is that the many, if not most of you, are in Christ. Right? You, you have a real and vital faith in the Lord Jesus. Uh, but as you listen to, to this uh, sermon today and as you grapple with these truths from God's word, uh, you find yourself in a season... Uh, where you are feeling a little bit apathetic or indifferent uh, towards those who are cut off from Christ. Uh, So what do you do? How do you get back in touch with this sort of sorrow that Paul experiences here? I want to suggest uh, that you've got to increase your awareness of eternity. Increase your awareness of eternity. I think it's pretty easy for us to live our lives or to get sucked into living our lives at least as if this life is all there is. But one of the key reasons why Paul was filled with such great joy at the end of Romans 8 and such great sorrow at the start of Romans 9 is because he lived his life with a deep awareness of eternity. He understood that this life is not all there is. Heaven is real, hell is real, and the only way that people can be saved from the horrors of hell to enjoy the wonders of heaven is if they're united with Christ by faith. That's what Paul understood. So how might might we increase our awareness of eternity? 
Uh, there's no silver bullet for that, is there? No pill that I can prescribe to take this, right? That really, the only thing we can do is think about it a bit more. Lift our eyes, reflect on it, meditate upon it. As such, that the eternal realities of heaven and hell actually start to shape how we think and feel and live, as they do for Paul. So really practically, let me make one suggestion. Maybe it won't work for you, maybe it will. You could read through one of the Gospels. I'd say Matthew's Gospel. And first time reading through the Gospel, highlight everything that Jesus has to say about the reality of hell. Think about it. Reflect upon it. Pray about it. Meditate upon it. If you do that, you'll see that Jesus doesn't just acknowledge the reality of hell. He really vividly describes the horrible sufferings of hell. Why would Jesus do that? Because he wants our hearts and minds to to be gripped by by the horrors of hell such that that we not only trust in him and get saved from the sufferings of hell ourselves, but we join him in his kingdom work, uh, uh, preaching the gospel so that others would be saved from the sufferings of hell. Increase your awareness of eternity by prayerfully reflecting on everything that Jesus has to say about hell. And then read through the gospel again and prayerfully reflect on everything Jesus has to say about heaven. Right? Hell, the, the eternal destiny of those who remain cut off from Christ. Heaven, the, the eternal destiny of those who are united with Christ by faith. What does Jesus say? Jesus says heaven is a real place. He says heaven is a place that God has prepared for us. A place of comfort, a place of rewards and treasures and abundant joy and gladness for the people of God. I think as you read through the Gospels and reflect on what Jesus has to say about the eternal realities of heaven and hell, if you do that, like Paul, soon you'll gain a greater appreciation of the greatest treasure it is to be in Christ. And that will lead to overflowing joy, the joy Paul experienced at the end of Romans 8. And you'll gain a greater appreciation of the greatest tragedy of being cut off from Christ. And that will lead to deep sorrow, as Paul experiences in this passage. And it's that joy and sorrow together that will compel you to be someone who makes great sacrifices for the sake of the gospel, that others might come to know Christ. And find the great treasure of knowing him and join you in heaven. When people reject Christ, especially those with great religious privileges, we should be moved to great sorrow, for this is the greatest tragedy. Let me pray for us. Oh, Father, so often we live our lives uh, with uh, the blinkers on, as it were, uh, not being aware of the, um, the great eternal realities that lie before us. I pray that in some small way, as we've looked at your word uh, today, uh, that the blinkers have been taken off a little, that we've been reminded of those great eternal realities, both for those who are in Christ and those who are cut off from Christ. 
I pray, Father, that if there's anyone watching today who uh, feels that they are currently cut off from, from Christ, I pray that they would be moved to put their trust in him and be saved both now and forever. And I pray for all of those uh, watching and listening today uh, who are in Christ, I pray that you would stir up in our hearts uh, great joy uh, at what we have to look forward to in all the wonders of heaven and great sorrow for those who don't currently have that to look forward to. Uh, please move us by this joy and sorrow uh, to share the gospel with them that they might be saved. Uh, we pray in the name of our Lord Jesus. Amen.